What do you want to do? Read the intro. Oh, wow. It is a lengthy one. Oh, you've done too much, mate. That's what's gone wrong. Okay. Let's make this happen. Did you do it? Hello and welcome to Business Without Bullshit. I am Andy Uri, uh, flying solo today, and I'm joined by Michael Akadiri. Michael is a multi-award winning comedian and junior doctor. I normally see that in a sentence. He was the winner of a Comedian New Comedy Award and starred in the London finals of the BBC New Comedy Awards. He trailblazed on TV shows like Comedy Central Live, ITV's stand-up sketch show, and his medical background means he is an in-demand health commentator appearing on BBC's Newsnight and Times Radio. Michael's Edinburgh Fridge show, No Scrubs, was a sellout success and was nominated for the Next Up Biggest Award in Comedy. Nice intro. Hey, uh, Michael, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Thank you, Andy, man. Uh, it's nice hearing your accolades read to you. It, it really is. It's very humbling. So, yeah, we, we, I always think I'm not doing enough. And then you read that, you're like, oh, I've, I've done something, but there's still more work to do yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's just sort of very British thing to be overly humble, isn't it? But yeah, Absolutely. You, you, you've de- you, I mean, man, you've, you've, you've managed to qualify as a doctor. That is a major step in your life anyway, you know? So. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that was a, a, a big day in the Akadiri household, let's just say that. Oh, nice. Was it something your parents really wanted you to do or something, was it? I, oh, yeah. So I think my mum was grooming me, so to speak, to be a doctor. She, she really wanted it. I think my dad did too. And it was a proud day for both of them when, you know, I actually did sort of qualify and whatnot. So it was nice to not do that for them, but obviously did it for myself. But also as a result, it was done for them as well, wasn't it? So Do you find you telling people, because my wife's a doctor and it's the number, she's a doctor in the NHS, you know, quite often in a and that gets her a lot of fucking kudos when we're out and about. Absolutely. Or do you say comedian and that gets you kudos? It's funny enough, when I'm on stage and I'm doing some jokes and I, I get to a bit when I want to tell some medical jokes, so I announce, oh, by the way, I have this background in medicine. Yeah, it's like an instant round of applause nine times out of ten they just applaud and it's like it's been like that since the pandemic just a round of applause you're now making me think of the um the clappers which is it's is, is such a controversial thing I yeah think, you know because i mean brian is always raising it my sorry my wife about you know are they clapping now kind of thing do you know what i mean it's the demonizing of doctors goes on a lot as well yeah, true. I was always skeptical when it, obviously the Thursday claps were announced back in 2020 because I kind of knew that the government got to jump on this. And when they jump on it, we're in trouble. And then I saw obviously Boris at the time outside number 10 clapping. I said, yeah, we're in trouble because they're going to use this as a way of showing their appreciation. I was like, look, when it comes to talking money, they're going to forget about the fact that he wanted us, needed us, all, all the other beloved or saying at the time, and they're going to go into hiding. And obviously, we, as we've seen with the strikes, that's exactly what's happened. And my, my other experience through her is that, it, it, well, you know, and talking to people is actually the general public think that doctors earn fine and they worry more about the nurses. And, and, and I mean, my wife does night shifts at eight pound an hour and, you know, because you, you, when you're on call, you get sort of eight. But, you know, stuff that you tell people and they go, I can't believe it's not front page news or some of this stuff that's just like, this is fucking outrageous, you know, that someone's taking this much risk and everything. But I think there's a sort of, doctors are incredibly underpaid and I'm not saying nurses aren't, but my sense is the general public actually think the doctors are paid fine. Is that yours? Oh, I think... If people use the headline news, if you're looking at the rate of a consultant, which not all of us are consultants, then you may have the opinion that 
they're well remunerated. But then again, you need to also consider, as you alluded to earlier, the risk that comes with sort of such and a role. insurance they have to take out. A consultant Absolutely. is a self-employed person. I think I think she pays like 15 grand a year or something. Yeah, there. yeah. yeah. All of us have to have med- medical indemnity, which you're you're referring to insurance. And for different specialties, it, it costs a lot more. So GP is one where the indemnity is quite high. Obs and gynae, obstetrics and gynecology is probably one of the highest, if not the highest, because if children are born with any defects, then usually, right. uh, and there's any negligence, then that could cost a lot to defend. So there, there obviously are those associated costs with being a medical professional, but I, I've, I'm sometimes with the general public. I think if you look at the, the how hard nurses work and the hours, and the training, they used to give nurses bursaries because as part of their training, as well as being in the lecture theatre, so to speak, they do a lot of placements, which they don't get remunerated for. So how are you taking away financial aid by expecting people to want to do a role where they have to, on top of their sort of full-time training, they need to somehow, some of them get extra jobs. So not only are they in lectures, not only are they doing shifts, they haven't to finance finance themselves separately and they're all meant to survive and then get to the end and then your own, I don't know, I think nurses start on about 25 grand and if 25 grand anywhere in the country is difficult, let alone in London where we are right now. So yeah, a lot lot of sympathy for their, their, their plight and their fight. Going in a slightly different direction, yep. what is at the forefront of your mind at the moment? What you know, what keeps you up at night at the moment? I would say staff retention in the NHS. Is it? I, I think retention is probably the issue. I think they talk a good game about, you know, the government. Oh, we're gonna hire this many more GPs, we're gonna train this many more doctors and stuff. And that's all well and good putting out these statements and having these intentions, but can you keep the staff that you plan to train? Because as we're seeing right now with the junior doctors, we've seen it with other sort of allied healthcare professionals, with our nursing colleagues, physiotherapists, paramedics, and what have you. A lot of them have been striking because they're not happy with their terms, conditions, and pay. So you can talk about wanting to hire those people, but what's the point of hiring them if, you know, if in a year or two, they're going to be like, you know what? We don't, we don't like these conditions. We don't like how you're treating us. We don't like our pay. We don't like whatever it is. So I think they need to look at ways of retaining the staff they have before they come with all these grand plans. What do you think is the main thing that causes people to leave? I think uh, one one aspect, to be frank, is is pay and not fee, especially, and that's been amplified with the cost of living crisis with inflation. Uh, I know it's come down a little, but it, it at its peak reached double figures. If you're rate of pay is not matching inflation obviously you're naturally losing money in the case of doctors one of the things that the bma have been sort of arguing is that in real terms compared to 2008 their pay has decreased about 26 percent in sort of real terms let alone when you compare it globally and you're being you know australia canada Uh, i don't like like to look andy because you know it makes me upset so thank you for reminding me i needed that sorry no no but i mean it's real it's real in a lot of countries doctors are treated like gods paid fortunes do you know what i mean and 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 here it's kind of i don't know i don't really understand it could it socialise? I think there's probably an aspect where socialised healthcare, but that's being said, I don't know what the healthcare system like is in Australia. I know in America, it's very sort of, you know, it's all about money and insurance. I don't know what it is in Australia, but they will hang on to the fact that socialised healthcare, but they can still do, I would argue, a bit better. Yeah, but for I sure. Argue, but I'm very biased. No, of course they could. But I mean, you know, if I try and put my the other hat on, it's like country is basically a bit fucked at the moment. Like as in there's not enough money. And then I can imagine you doing the budget and you're saying like, 
okay, well, really, we should put up everyone's wages by like 20%, you know, yeah, like yeah, across yeah. the board, whether you'd be doing rubbish or whatever. You know, I think the concept of a vocational job and then being helped in the community. I mean, it, it, again, my wife puts this well. It's like, you know, when she turned up from Trinidad 20 years ago, you know, back then she would live in the hospital, but they would have free food and they would have various sort of stuff and things like that. And she just says, it's a bit like what you're saying with nurses, these little things have been removed. So therefore it all sort of becomes a bit more pointed the whole time. It's sort of like, oh, okay, I'm, you know, I'm being, I'm being badly played, but I'm also getting no sort of, you know, if a vocation, the concept of, a, you know, an age old concept of vocation is I want to do something for the community. Absolutely. There's also a sense of respect back from the community. Yeah, know? yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're a doctor. What can we do for you? You know, please uh, come come through. You know what I mean? Hey, that, yeah, that's there. That that's all God. There's no like, like even little stuff like like complimentary parking. If you if you live somewhere, yeah, you have if, to pay for parking at the hospital. Hey, hey, you got you got to get, dip into your own pockets to pay for this parking. And those parking attendants can be militant, especially because it's private land and stuff. They can be so militant I've had a debate on a few of these parking guys in my time but yeah so you have to pay for, like stuff like that paying for your own parking uh, obviously paying obviously paying for meals and obviously yeah yeah you used to be the free food and the canteen and the free parking I mean that should be fucking mandatory isn't it it, it should be included and those, those are little touches that sort of even though it seems quite small and insignificant someone may be watching and think oh it's only, it's only parking but those little things make a difference mm. into how you feel how you're treated how you're respected if anyone's work of life if you feel that you're treated, respected, and valued, then that's how you keep employees for decades on end, you know, because they feel that, you know, my work here is appreciated rather than you're fighting against your employer to for respect. And you wouldn't have thought of that, especially working in healthcare. There's also the problem if we, okay, so, you know, whatever government it is, and it'll be interesting, assuming Labour gets in what they're going to do, and, you know, everyone hopes they put the wages up, but you start taking a big number and putting 10% on top of it, that's a very, very big number. Do you know what I mean? So oh, there's, absolutely. There's a, there's a budgetary problem that the country's a bit screwed, whether it be Brexit or otherwise. We're not actually killing it at the moment, you know? Yeah. So, they, they, you know, there's a problem there. But let's take another problem, which is, you know, Dr. Google, as they say, that there's a problem now that, Doctors aren't respected because the patient has a lot of information and they come in pre-diagnosed. They're not like, you're my God, tell me what's wrong with me. They're like, I've got this and I need this. And if you don't give me this, I'm going to get angry, you know? Absolutely. Is this is this something you've experienced, dude? Hey, man, Google and WebMD are causing a lot of problems, man. But I, literally, <laughs> like the thing is, you should encourage people to read about their health. You should encourage people to take an interest in their health and read about it. It's meant to be patient-centered care. It's meant to be informed consent. So you've got information handed to you so you understand decisions about your health care. But sometimes that can go too far. And when it, when it goes too far is when someone is coming in and telling you what they have and what they need for this. Let me tell you something, man. This is common too, yeah. Hey, very common. Let, let, let me tell you something. You, you, with respect, are the patient. I am the medical professional. You can decline care. You can't demand care. Yes, very interesting point. You can't demand a scan. I need this. I need that. Let the clinician with the training decide what they feel is most appropriate. And you can disagree. You may say, you know what? I don't want to do that. And you, obviously, you're, you're welcome to go get a second, third opinion, but you can't come to any of these opinions saying, I need this, yeah. I need that. I spoke to my cousin who's an ex, and he said, I need Y. 
it, it don't work like that. If if you want that, go to your cousin then. Yeah. But you know you can't do that because the GMC will get involved. So that's sometimes where it can be, it's always tricky dealing with a patient who's got relatives in the medical field because they come, he, they need this, they need that. But at the end of the day, I'm the one with full access to their records and I'm making the decision that I feel is best. And that may not collude with what you and Google, WebMD have said, but this is sort of where we are. Because let's say Google says you need an MRI. You come in, I need an MRI now. That's what Google said. The system don't work like that. MRIs are rare. You, yeah, they're get very, this. very expensive machines. They're, there are masses of them. A hundred percent. Most hospitals probably have one. If in a big hospital, they may they may have a handful. What's your advice then to to patients? So you know, people, we worry. We've gone on Google. Absolutely. We've decided we're going to die. We're going to need this drug within twelve hours. You know. <laughs> <laughs> That look, there's a strong part of me that said there should be a 72 hour ban on reading on Google WMD before seeing your doctor. But that's I, oh, that's a great idea. I I I, I think there'll be a, a bit of pushback. Like the thing, I think you should read on something, but don't come and demand. Well, respect the doctor in their field. You yeah, know, absolutely. diagnosis is an art form. You know, the science involved, but it's an incredibly complicated thing. Diagnosis. I mean, again, this is so much. This living with my wife for years, but yeah. you know, she's like you most. The moment someone walks in a room, you diagnose them because you can tell whether someone's healthy or not because you've yeah, seen yeah, you unhealthy get, you get people. Feel. You know, can they walk, you know, have they got a gait? But you've got to respect the profession. I get it as an accountant. I, I mean, God, I can name them, but I won't. But, you know, a client's wife, let's say, thinks she knows how personal tax works and it's like, and they cut, and it's disconjointed how they've put the information together. Absolutely. They don't understand the picture. They've taken a bit over here and a bit under here and there's a word they've taken which has multiple meanings in tax and they've yeah. applied it over here because that's what it means and you end up, and you, it's very difficult because you can sort of, if they are, they're going to be pushy about it. My ability is I can just tell them to fuck off, basically. I don't have to serve them. Yeah, you, you, you've got that benefit. I, we I don't have that like, benefit. I, I could be like, look, I'm just going to be rude to her now because I've tried to be polite and say, look, I've been doing this a long time. You know, I've studied this subject for 20 years. Yeah. Please don't tell me how the tax works. You know, I'm not wrong and you've caught me out. You're trying to make yeah. sure that, you know, you're just don't know what the fuck you're talking about. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And yeah. each time I try and explain it to you, I can't in half an hour explain to you fucking the whole tax law. I can tell you what the answer is, but if you want to understand how I got there, shit, we better start in class five years ago. You Absolutely, know? yeah, yeah, go get educated. Go get educated, yeah, you know. You're not, then, you're, not on the, you're not on my level when it comes to that regard. And I mean, the other bit, I don't know how you manage that though with people, particularly that, my wife got throttled, almost strangled by this person who was oh, demanding a job. Oh, it was awful. And she was in the room on her own. And, oh, my you goodness. You know, it was terrible. And it turned out he was, um, he'd actually been let out of prison. He had some violent issues and stuff. And he decided he wanted this medication. But, you know, he turned up in, it's like you turn up in A&E and demand some drug. And it's like, uh, you need to go see your GP. Yeah, I can't yeah, help yeah. you. But it also, it, it led me to some of this sort of idea that I'm like, I sort of joke, there needs to be bouncers on, like at the front, you know, like when people come up and say, what's wrong with you, mate? Oh, oh I've got this cough, how long you've had it? 24 hours, fucking do one, mate. You know, it needs to be, it needs to be like a strong front door, doesn't it? The other big hot potato on healthcare is always, what do you feel about private and public and, you know? Oh, yeah, well, Richie Sunak tried to, what did he try to push? £10 to see your GP or £10 for you the appointment? You disagree with that? Would it not, you know, they do it in Ireland. Yeah, I think it's, it's all to do with social and health inequalities. There's probably a lot of people, we talk about cost of living crisis, so that, that £10 could really make the difference to some people between 
seeking healthcare or not. And it may seem, depending on where you are, £10 may not be a lot It would need to be means tested. It would need, it, you would need, I mean, other countries managed to sort that out with a, you know, national insurance code or something. It should be something you plug in a computer and say, oh, it's free. But if you're, if you're earning more than 30, 40 grand, so well, it's £10. Yeah, there's, there's, that, that, I think a, a medium like that potentially, potentially could work, potentially. But I guess it depends on what number we use as this is your... Bun- I don't yeah, know what yeah. number for the poverty line is. I actually don't know. But if that's a fair number in the grand sort of scheme. That's of quite thing. quite high. I mean, poverty line's much lower, although it's much higher in London, of course, because yeah. you need so much more. But what do you feel? Do you feel having two systems is a bad idea or do you care really I on f- that? I feel that the, the way we're moving in that direction, a lot, a lot of work does get outsourced to these sort of private companies. Well, that's Mr. Hunt's, managed to say it right, plan. That was his, you know. Yeah, to outsource stuff, yeah. Did, did he, I think he wrote a manifesto. He wrote a manifesto. It's effectively, you can't shut down the NHS. So it's it's been failing for decades. So as it continues to fail, it will become somewhat privatized, is what happens, because we cannot literally afford the healthcare costs. I mean, the other thing I think that would be, in fact, a doctor I know said, said this to me the other day, and I was like, oh, that's something I've always thought, that when you leave hospital, they should give you a bill that you don't have to pay, but just let you know. By the way, that was £40,000. You know? I, I think that's great. I, I would support that. If, if, if that. if that was a notion that I could vote on, I, I would support that. I think it's just the transparency is sort of useful. And mm. I think people knowing how much sort of thing to cost. Because I think, obviously, because it's free at the point of need, you don't actually know how much this costs. Like, I think this estimated that a hospital stay is around £500 a night on average. So people may not know that. People may not know that every night being here is £500 to the taxpayer. So I'm not saying that to be like, well, I'm going to go, I'm going to discharge myself early or to put that pressure on anyone. But I just think it's useful to sort of have that transparency that, being here costs money. Actually, if you speak to someone, because a client of mine is an expert in international healthcare systems. Yeah. And he, it was a little while ago, this conversation, maybe five, six years ago. And, and he said, Andy, NHS is an incredible system. He said, mm. it's still one of the best healthcare systems in the world. He's Australian originally, but he's an expert in this. And he's like, certainly for serious conditions and stuff. And I think you still, every day, will hear stories from friends. Oh, I had a thing. I went, it was fantastic. Now, I'm rich and privileged enough that I've gone private a lot in my life. I've gone NHS. And I have to say, once you fucking get through the queue, the NHS experience, it can be amazing, you know, and actually better. But, but what happened to you? I mean, is in you enjoying being a doctor? Why why the turn of the traffic lights? Yes, yes, yeah. Do you know, do you know, it wasn't that I wasn't enjoying it. I think I probably just started enjoying comedy more. Oh, so you started sort of doing it anyway, co- comedy on the side? Or? Yeah, so the comedy just happened sort of completely sort of by chance. Obviously, people, friends would tell you, oh, Michael, you're, you're, you're a bit witty or you're a bit funny. And <laughs> do you know what? I was, I just had a bit of curiosity and I sort of signed myself up for an open mic night. I didn't know it was a gong show till I got there. And what a gong show is, is where the audience members, three audience members have cards who are randomly selected and you have to try last five minutes. If all three of them put the cards up, in this one, it's called the blackout. So the literally stage blacks out. You gotta, you gotta fuck off. And you prepare material, of course. For you this. prepare material, but if the audience don't fuck with it, then. But you, how long had you been preparing for? You'd sort of been working on a five minute piece. Or... I've been working on a five minute piece. I guess maybe for a few weeks. I didn't know it was going through till I got. So I thought it was just an open mic night in my local right. comedy club. I'll pop down on a Thursday. Told a few friends to come through. I'm gonna, you know, what, this comedy. I'm gonna give it a go, man. And then I did. I got there and I lasted what three and a half minutes. And I thought that was decent for the first time ever. That was probably from like 200 people. I, I, I can't even watch the video back. I cringed. Like I had my hands yeah, in my yeah. pocket. Didn't take the mic at the stand. Literally, it was just 
Stand in Terrifying. There. I don't think I think that's one of the most scary things to ever have to do. Public you know? speaking, yeah. No, but comedy particularly. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I rap and I find it terrifying because I can never remember my lyrics. I find it really hard to remember my oh, lyrics. Oh, damn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's because I write them all on my phone now and I have to write them out by I don't know. But I always think comedy, that's that's the most brutal. There's nowhere to hide. Nowhere There's to no hide. No hide. You're on stage, everyone can see you, everyone can see you, not just you what hear you, but they can see your mannerisms. You can tell when someone's nervous. And you can feel it in the room as well. And then everyone feels oh, the person's nervous. Then everyone's on their back up. And then it's harder to make an audience laugh if they've got their back up because they're nervous for you. So now if we're all nervous for you, we're looking at what you're doing. And you're like, yeah. So then you've got to make sure you're the calmest person in the room. You've got to make sure you're, you, you know, dude, you give, you give off the vibe that this, you've been here, you've done this. And obviously when you're starting out, you can't have that bravado because you don't know what you're doing. You're yeah. new to this and stuff. So it took a while to get real comfortable on stage but now I'll say I'm at a point six years later where I feel I feel very comfortable on stage and and I'm comfortable going on any stage and just seeing what happens I was doing comedy and medicine I was living I was like Clark Kent double life yeah doing both doing both <laughs> not just any job being like a doctor working crazy hours okay and yeah doctor worked crazy hours doing open mics in the evenings and then the open mics eventually became like sort of more professional nights where I do stuff on the weekend and it started getting to a point where people were like oh you know we'll actually give you money to do this like, what you're going to give me money to say my thoughts out loud stuff I came out of my bedroom you're going to give me like, what is going on and then it got to then I won I was involved in a few competitions Won, won a couple of competi com competitions, got an agent, did a few little bits and bobs on TV. So I'm like, oh, snap. This hobby that I started is getting a little bit out of control. And that's what it kind of felt like. It just it went from, let's just try this out to you're on TV. You're, people are paying you money. You got an agent. You could do this now I if you want. Do, yeah. So it got to that. And then. And actually, the, helping someone medically is an amazing thing to, 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 you know, to be a doctor and actually really help people sometimes. Absolutely. But actually, making people laugh is a pretty amazing thing as well. And I think this was the defining point. I've not experienced a better feeling than making a room erupt with laughter. Yeah. That feeling, that dopamine hit you get, that sensation. The first time I did that in open mic night that I mentioned earlier, I think I'm chasing that hit. And I think that's why every time I'm going to say, I'm, I'm chasing it. I'm on, I want to get that feeling again that I had the first time I did this. And now the problem I hear with comedy though is now is that and you, you, you know, why do we do this podcast? Because I feel it's one form in which you can just try and be honest yeah. and have a chance to finish what you said and not be turned into a soundbite necessarily. Mm. Do you find that um, difficult? As in like you're doing stuff on TV as well as yeah. what you would do in a club. Is it, you know, I mean, what, how, do you, how does a comedian approach the modern comedic world? I always say the audience tell you if you're right or wrong or if something's too far. Let's just go that way. The audience in a club will tell you by their reaction. Not not always. Sometimes you get confident hecklers who will be like, that's not that, that's not that. I've had a few of them. But more time, the audience, by their laughter and by their reaction, will sort of tell you, if have you pushed the line? too far? Have you gone too far? And stuff you like hear that. an ooh. But, yeah. then, but then there will be one person laughing their fucking ass off. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's the person that will come see you on tour. So the, okay. the person that is absolutely dying that's that's a fan for life when okay. you get someone belly laughing like that that's a fan for life but obviously I'm in the stage where I'm mainly doing the clubs I've done one tour hopefully I'm going to plan to do another but I'm at the stage where I'm still sort of building my audience so to speak mm. so when I go to clubs most more time people don't know me so they just take me at face value so I know if I say something they laugh I'm like okay that, that's funny it's not that you're laughing because you like me or you know me it must be for you objectively sort of funny and stuff so if I say something and there's an all 
And I do that joke a few different places and I, it always gets awed and that tells me that there's something in a joke I need to work on. Mm. Either it's just simply not funny or I need to punch it up a bit. I need to deliver it differently. I need to, it's a lot of trial and error in comedy. So I'm like, okay, there's something in that bit that I need to sort of work on. That's why it's getting this sort of pullback, so to speak. So the audience kind of tell you where you're at and stuff. I guess, and as you as you hone that art, then you'll know what you can and can't do on TV if you get there, I guess. Oh, yeah. The TV's a whole different... So whenever you... Most time when I've done sets, the fortunate times I've done it, you have to submit your script... Oh, wow. ...to the producers who then take it to legal, who then decide, can you say that? Can you not say that? Can you say that? Can you not say that? So, for example, when I did the BBC New Comedy Awards, I had the, there was a five-minute set on TV that is on iPlayer. I had to submit my five-minute set there was a joke about uh, my old university university of nottingham that they didn't want me to say university of nottingham yeah okay they said you can say uni but you can't actually mention their name yeah yeah because bbc's got to be impartial and they're 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 charitable governmental almost yeah i think it was that and i think they were like oh because i led something about university like have you got proof and i sent them a photo they're like okay but we still don't want you to say the name (laughs) <laughs> I now need to know what the vote I saw, but yeah. yeah. So, no, I'll tell you. So, so the joke is based on the fact, so a few years ago, the university, uh, I think through their student union, announced that there was a black student of the year. <laughs> okay. But the student wasn't black. <laughs> so, yeah. So I was like, okay, I got a joke about this. I have to write something about this. But I, I, was, I was already like, Enraged, not enraged, but I, it was like, what the fuck? And then it sort of spurred me. So now, through comedy, if I see something and I'm like, what the fuck? Instead of getting angry about it, I, will, I just find a way to find the humor in it. And then, if I find enough, I had a Prince Andrew joke, which they were completely fine with. They said, you can say his name, you can do it. <laughs> fuck Prince Andrew. They're like, fuck Prince Andrew. <laughs> say the Prince Andrew joke. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I think Emily uh, Mateus obviously st- opened that can of words. So now you can make your Prince Andrew jokes on BBC, no problem, but you can't say University of Nottingham. I think, I should be careful how I say this, but it's like, I feel like, because the word woke has been weaponized anyway, yeah. but I feel like we're slightly turning the corner a bit. You know, these pendulums swing, don't they? Yeah. And it did feel like it had almost got to a point you couldn't fucking say it. You just cannot have any open debate now, you know? But it feels a little bit like when the, in the comedy world, you know, because I take that as a great lean that yeah. maybe we're, we're getting a little bit back into like... Because woke is being taken the piss off so much now, yeah, yeah, a lot yeah. of comedy is now about taking the piss out of being over woke. Yeah, yeah absolutely, you know? absolutely. Yeah, no, that's a complete angle. Like, there's be socially aware, but then obviously there's angles in like if you're too socially aware, that can be irrit- uh, irritating. And the people I've seen quite a few comics take the piss out of people who try to do too much because you can't you can't cover everything. It's very difficult to be that liberal over everything. I find anyway. So it's, there's so many different campaigns that are happening or atrocities that are happening that how you got to keep abreast of one thing, two things, three things. I don't know. But um, I think in comedy, the thing is, as you build one's career, you build your audience and your audience will sort of gravitate towards where you're going. So you take someone like Ricky Gervais, Gervais's special comes out and everyone's slamming it. He's transphobic. He's got this joke, that joke, that joke, this joke in it. But he's selling out his tours. Yeah. He's doing he's doing arenas. He's doing like tickets are flying out. He releases Afterlife. It's one of the biggest grossing sitcoms dramedies on Netflix. So for all the controversy, for all the oh, he shouldn't be able to say that he da 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 da. He's saying it, and there's people who are paying the money. 
that want to hear it. Mm. No, I'm not saying I'm not saying sitting there saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying he's got a style of comedy that loads of people want to hear. I think it's the huge strength of the country that we use humor so much. Is although we yeah. faff about the point because we use humor so much. Like we have very deep relationships, men to men, particularly. Or you know, I'm not saying women. I'm just saying you know, compared to other countries where men can be all a bit machismo, we're actually not at all here. But that's kind of like. Your best friend is the one who can sort of say, you know, well, you're looking a bit fat, mate. And yeah, say, yeah, yeah, pies, yeah, yeah. Uh, weekend. yeah, but it, it releases you. Like, you might be feeling a bit fat and a bit embarrassed about it, and your best mate saying it to and ribbing you and everyone. I don't know what it is in our culture, but it releases you from it. You're like, no, you're right. No, I've been, you know. And there's something very powerful in that because it means we never really say something for sure. You never know if we're being serious. So it means we can we can say anything if we know how to do it. Absolutely. If you're brave enough, then like no topic is off limits. As long as you're smart enough with it, I think you can get away with a lot of things. Uh, but it depends if one wants to go there. I don't tend to make jokes unless I sort of knowledgeable about it and have an interest in it. Because you, you as a comedian on stage, you've got to be the most knowledgeable person about the topic you're talking about. Because if someone heck would say, that's not right, then you've got to know how to rebuttal that. If you're on shaky ground with something, let's say I'm talking about, you mentioned earlier, bananas, and I'm on stage making a joke about bananas. And I allege that bananas are, you know, the most sold fruit in the UK. And someone that is somehow knows information about it, they said, no, that's wrong, it's strawberries, or whatever it is, then I'm, I've now lost ground. And as a comedian, you need to be the most dominant person sort of in the room so those are the two things that are knowledgeable and interest and then if I can make a joke about something I would if, you, if you're smart enough you're wise enough you can go into anything what's the biggest problem in the industry is it still the fact that now jokes once you've told them publicly that's it well, I subscribe to that, but it doesn't actually hold true. So, for example, I've put jokes out on my social media and it may get, let's just, it gets 5,000 views. Let's just say, for example, not a lot in the grand scheme of things, but 5,000 views. I may be like, oh my goodness, I put it online. No one can ever hear it in a club. But there's probably the people that go to clubs. There's probably half people who just go to comedy who don't even use social media. So you can think all precious about your one joke. But if it's not gone, even if it's gone viral, you can still do it in the clubs because there's probably people in the clubs who haven't heard the joke. Mm. You know, so you try to be precious about certain jokes if you're still working on them. Like I'm working on a new hour, so I'm not going to be putting out the jokes as I'm still working on them, especially if I've got something to sell. If I want you to come to my tour, what's up when I come to a tour where you've seen half the jokes on social media? So it's a product that you want to sell, but you still want to give them sort of testers, so to speak. I mean, what is the what is the industry of a comedian then? You have to get an agent? Is it just you and an agent and a, and a telephone? You know? Yeah, yes, it's, yeah. So nowadays, what people tend to do, especially in this country, is that you start out open mics and then you move on from open mics to sort of what we call sort of pro clubs, professional clubs where people are paid money and you may be doing unpaid spots in these pro clubs to sort of build your way up to the paid sort of spots. And then the paid spots usually 20-minute set. So that's the goal. Most clubs, will you, you do a 20-minute set and then you get club 20-minute club set where it's punchy, you're getting It's quite like, a long time, 20 minutes actually, yeah. to, 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 to stand up and make jokes. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 100%. Like, it's weird because I've done an hour now, 20 minutes doesn't feel that long. Yeah. But on building towards the 20 minutes, Fault forever. You get a nice 10, you think I've got good 10. Then you're like, I have to double this. And you you memorize it. Basically, it's memorized oh, yeah, almost yeah, yeah. word for word. Or well, yeah, different comics do it differently. I'm I write out my whole jokes and then I remember them probably close enough word for word. I remember my sets word for word. But then as I'm 
doing them in the clubs, if I can make something tight, I'll switch a word in, I'll switch a word in to make it tighter. But I, I tend to remember my sets word for word. But when I do a smash set list, I'll just bullet point. Okay, we'll start this joke, we're going to talk about. So it's obviously since I've had my boy, I'll talk about obviously his birth and stuff like that and complications and obviously funny complications during the birth and whatnot. So I know that's my sort of starting joke now. No, funny complications during, I don't think anything's funny complication during a birth. You, you can it? make it happen. As I said earlier, you can make, you can make anything funny. You can make anything funny as long yeah. as you find the angle. And you would, you, you need, you get an agent. That's crucial, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think nowadays to sort of link you to the industry, you need someone that's in these rooms, whether physical or virtual, sort of shouting your name and stuff like that. So you get a 20 minute set and then you get, Maybe some people get an agent before they got a 20-minute set, but usually as they're sort of working towards something, they get an agent, and that agent, the idea is your agent helps you broadcast and opportunities, gets you TV, sort of radio, if you want to do sitcoms, films, acting, whatever. So all those type of stuff, that's where your agent helps, as well as they can help you get into certain clubs in the country. And you try and you try and get a job writing for comedy shows as well? Is that the, the next stage? You, you build up a name and then do that. Exactly. So if you can get a, a writing job, that's good, because comedy, you perform in the evening but writing jobs during the day so you can get a job during the day writing then you perform in the evening great you're using your time efficiently you're making money sort of both ways but usually it's, there's only a few handful of those writing jobs and they're competitive there are people who are comedians that have writing that do writing or there are people who are just professional comedy writers so they don't perform they literally just write for TV shows so you're competing with them as well so it, that can be a competitive field but those things can help boost your name because if you can put on your comedy CV writer on have I got news for you or whatever? Then obviously, general public, oh, that's a very funny show. If you're writing on it, you must, you got, you got some credits. Everyone's looking for TV credits. What's your advice then to someone like thinking about being a comedian? What would you, what'd you say to them? You got to believe in your source. You got to believe in yourself before other people. Okay. But you don't know if your jokes are funny, you told me. Unt until you go on stage. But you got to believe they're funny. Yeah, yeah. It's this weird sort of... Confidence. Confidence. Yeah, comedy is this weird sort of balance of going on stage with the bravado of... I think these jokes are funny. I think you're going to find them funny. But being humble enough if they're not funny to accept that they're not funny. It's just weird. You want the audience to like you, but you have to accept some audience may not like you. And if they don't, fuck them. It's kind of like, it's kind of, you have to have that sort of attitude because not everyone will like you. Have you bombed? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's part, that's part of life. Oh, come on. That's part of the process. But there must be a level of bombing where it's like, you kind of so embarrassed, you kind of have to waddle off sort of thing. Oh, yeah, with the gong shows. And there was one I did the first time I did the comedy store in Piccadilly Circus. I went for their gong show. Now their one is probably the hardest in the country. Right. So it's on a Monday night and the audience are encouraged to be rowdy. And yeah, they, they feed you drink. I've been there. They, they're like, come on, get drunk, get drunk, get they, drunk. They, they want the audience are raw because you, if you walk in there, you don't know what day it is. You would think it's a Saturday night because it's raw, yeah, it's yeah. pumped heavy. And um, this one, I think I lasted like a minute. I went on stage, someone heckled, oh, that's not funny. And then all just like sort of booing. And then I started choking. I was like, oh, shit. That's it, it gets to you. Yeah, yeah. That like my voice started drying up. I was like, oh, yeah. And then I tried to do the bit. And then one car, two car, three car. Oh, man. Wow. Oh, that, that was a bad day. My I friend, can see it still hurting you, man. I can yeah, see it. Yeah, oh, that, that was a bad day. But in terms of very useful my journey, because you need the bad days and the, the whole comeback stronger and whatnot. Yeah, because you... I'll fucking show them. 100%. You may think, oh, that joke's all right. And then if it gets a reaction like that, you're like, oh, I need to cut it. Oh, that's one of my better jokes. Well, it's, it's not good enough. And then you need to be mm. tough for yourself. Take the joke out of your set. 
but that's the blah, blah, blah. You're, like you have to sort of mental chat. You take the joke out yourself. Blah, 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 blah. You know, you've got to take the joke out the set. That's an interesting thing because in music you have usually even if you rap on your own, you've got a producer there, or there's other rappers, or if you're in a band, there's other band members. And we're not yeah, part of getting good at music is 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 learning how to pick up on on the cues. I.e., if no one's saying anything, it's probably no good, you know. And if someone says something minor, like yeah, it's all right. Yeah, and yeah, literally yeah. that's ba- if it depends who's giving it to you. You know, if it, if it, it's Rodney P versus whatever, you know, yeah, but it's yeah, like yeah. it's like oh, actually, I fucking smashed that apparently. So it's quite subtle, but also as you say, you need the feedback, and you are usually in you will build a few people in life, and that may be someone that you write music together with, where you have that really good. You manage to get to that place with someone where they give you. It still hurts. Yeah, they say. I just get rid of that whole fucking thing. It was pretty boring. And it's like, gosh, I worked for two weeks on that. And it was all about my mum. You know, and it's like, it really hurts. But Absolutely. you're like, I respect this person's opinion. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. You 100%. Know? What's the best advice anyone's never given you then? Of these, have you had any mentors of other comedians or? I've had, I've had people saying, speak about what you know, which I kind of allude to it. Speak about what you know and what you're interested in. And this is not a direct, I didn't. He didn't tell me this person. I've never met him personally. But I saw Dave Chappelle was given, I think, an actor. I don't know. He was given an actor comedy advice, and in it he said, "You didn't have to be funny all the time, but you've got to be interesting all the time." Yeah, and that that really resonated with me. I was like, "Yeah, like you may not be punch, 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 especially for an hour. No, it's very difficult for." An I think for an audience member to be there, punch, 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 punch. But sometimes you've got to slow it down, pick up the pace, slow it down, pick up the pace, especially along an hour. such an interesting comment. You've got to be interesting because that's what matters, isn't it? There's funny moments. In the st- because if I'm not interested, I'm not going to be following the story anyway. Absolutely. And 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 I have to say, it's died slightly as a style, hasn't it? But the, like Ken Dodd, you know, remember, like yeah, if you yeah, go yeah, back yeah. to... And I remember watching Ken Dodd, who's a magnificently ugly chap, if you don't know who he is, but um, but an absolute legend. I mean, you know, he's passed now, and a lovely, lovely guy. But I remember watching him, I, he just blew me away, I remember once watching, because he, yeah. he could do the jokes. The yeah, joke, yeah, he's yeah, just yeah. fucking, Sharp. he's he's amazing jokes, you know. And that style of comedy was the old style, wasn't yeah. it? You know, just punchline, punchline. Now it's much more narrative. It's a sort of Richard Pryor kind of style, you yeah. know. And you have the difficult thing that is, a, you know, I have a similar thing as a professional qualification. You have to keep it up, condition, continual professional development. Absolutely. My wife's just had it having babies and yeah. managed to just get back into medicine in time. But, you know, it's brutal on the sort of assessments she has to oh, have. Oh, my goodness. But whereas, you know, mum and dad, super proud. You made it as a doctor, amazing. You've, you've not done this in a kind of bitter, which is really nice to hear in a way. It's not like, fuck medicine, I'm doing yeah, something else. Yeah. It's just... Okay, this is kind of cool too. Yeah, absolutely. And where are they on the whole? They, I just the other day I was speaking to my mum and she was like, "Well, make sure you, you know, book some shifts." Just like she's like, "Oh, just keep your toe in the keep your toe in the water, dip your toe." In. You have to do quite a lot to keep it. You can take a one year gap, can't you, or something? You can't take too long before they start getting suspicious about what you're sort of doing. I had an appraisal recently. It went all fine and whatnot. Just an annual sort of checkup on what you've been up to, what you need to do, and stuff. So it went all fine, but there definitely is like a. I said you got to do a certain amount of hours every sort of year. What, what have you got a plan for this? My plan is to do ideally a few shifts every month, just to keep my hand in, but not with any sort of plan. The plan is really, I gave myself two years. I said, give myself two years of the comedy as the predominant thing. To get where, to get really... Just see where the trajectory goes. Because yeah. I was doing both for five years, doing both. It got to a point where I couldn't do both at the same intensity. And have a one-year-old, yeah. 
Exactly. So I was like, you know what? Let me focus on the comedy and that doing that helps me. I can stay at home with my boy and my missus gone back to work. I can look after him and stuff like that. But also give me a chance to focus full time, so to be on the comedy and just see the trajectory. Is my trajectory like, oh, you could make a good living from this or is my trajectory like, it's just a week thing to do on the weekends to supplement your income or just for a bit of fun. So after a year, I'm still, it's still undecided. I think I could have done a bit better this year in terms of my career. I think things could have gone a bit better, but there's all, I've given myself another You should months. always think that in a way so yeah, that you, do, you always do better. Do you know what I mean? Complacency doesn't get you anywhere, does 100%, it? 100%. You know? 100%. Well, you see, I don't know if you're, you watch football, but you see people like Lionel Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo, got five, six, seven Ballon d'Ors and they go again the next year, the next year. So yeah. if they're at the top of their field at the super peak of their power still going, what's my excuse? <laughs> you you got to push. I mean, it's an interesting question because it sort of came out of a, an accident here, but... You've got a one-year-old, your yeah. wife's gone back to work. I mean, the spending time with the kids sort of um, concept, so the modern sort of concept, I would say, as a Londoner, I can only really speak as that, I guess, yeah. is is that, you know, there's a lot of sharing of childcare between men and women. Men are expected to do as much as they can. Yeah, One of you may earn more money, probably does, logically, and maybe is a more primary breadwinner, but like in your situation, it's more of sort of balance of hours and, yeah, yeah. you know, my wife does shifts and stuff and night work or whatever. But there's there's a sort of attitude that you've got to be a perfect mom and a perfect thing. You've got to be a perfect dad and a perfect thing. And there's an interesting argument about like, you know, I never, I never saw my dad and he built this business and he created this amazing future for our family, mm. but he was not present, you know, and, but I didn't, I never probably problem with him you know mm. I love my dad yeah, I'd see him on holiday once a year you know yeah, he yeah, just yeah. seemed like he was this exhausted man for about a week and then he cheered up and tried, kept trying to hug me all the time you know <laughs> <laughs> that, that was my dad you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, what yeah. do you what do you feel in this sort of world now you know that you know it, can can someone can one partner just go out and fucking work you know, and not and not be there at bedtime ever it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a hard one because it it's a hard one because I I guess it depends on what works for your family. I know this is a bit of a cop-out, but it depends what works on your family. I, with the comedy, probably faster than... And it can work in medicine, so just not to uh, put medicine to the side. My father-in-law's a GP, and he's done very well for himself. So the plan with the comedy is hopefully that it's successful enough where I can be at home and take the time out and stuff like that. Because with comedy, it's like a short... It can be a short, but you can go on a comedy tour, a big tour... You're busy for maybe six weeks, eight weeks, so depending on how long the tour is, maybe three months of the year. You just well, you're a writer a lot of the time, so you can be at home and you're right. And as you say, life gives you ideas and you write them in your phone. You live life. I'm always on my notes. I'm, oh, this happened. Okay, that could be funny. Da, 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 da. Yeah, yeah. So you can go on tour. Let's say you go on tour for three months. Tour just killing. You're 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 out most of the week, but what you comedy is mainly it's unsocial hours. So most most tour show to be Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or whatever. And then you're out. So early in the week, you're at home. You can go on tour. And you, if you're successful enough or you're big enough, you can sort of make enough where you probably don't have to work too much for the rest of the year. I'm definitely not at that level now. I don't want people getting the wrong idea. But if you're successful enough, you're a big name comic. You could definitely live life like that. Some comics, look at Peter Kay. Obviously, he's, he's mega successful. Done tours, TV shows, adverts. He took time out for, felt like a decade. Obviously, he's very successful. So I'm talking, I'm looking at the top of the game there. But... You can, that's 10 years. I don't know if he has children, but that's 10 years you could have spent with your child growing yeah, up, going yeah. to school, doing that stuff. So comedy is a route to that, depending on to how To give you successful. a really nice work, to, to be able to, because who want to miss their kids growing up? Absolutely. You know? I mean, they drive you mad to some extent, but you know. Well, that's, part, that's part of the deal. 
And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Business Without Bullshit is brought to you by Ori Clark, straight-talking financial and legal advice since 1935. You can find us at oriclark.com. Is there anything you think there's bullshit? I mean, we could do medicine, but maybe bullshit in the comedy industry then. Oh, bullshit in the comedy industry. I think the necessity or the feeling that you need to go to Edinburgh Fringe Festival, I think that's bullshit. And I think that because there's a lot of, I, I don't know, but it costs on average 10 grand to take a shot up there. And that's 10 grand that you probably won't see a lot change from when you... You won't get back. There's 10 grand loss. Yeah, more time. Yeah, you may recoup some in your ticket sales, but if you're, especially if you're just starting out and you've not got a big name for yourself, you're not going to have a big room. So, you know, you can't generate that level of revenue. And I think the push from the industry that you must do this thing, which now it's getting to a point where there's comedians who are bypassing it which is good because essentially back in the day just cast your mind let's say just 20 years ago if you wanted to get on tv all the, all the comedians you probably see and famous on tv most of them would have you know got their 20 minute set got to an hour taken a show to edinburgh with the cost associated with doing so uh go for broke essentially um and then get maybe nominated for Best Perrier Newcomer. Or whatever the Perrier, exactly. Yeah. Get nominated for that. And then that gets the industry detention. Oh, oh, this this guy or this girl just won this. Oh my goodness, they must be great. You get put on all the panel shows. You're soon doing Live at Apollo. And then back in the day, you do Live at Apollo. You can talk. You're just a big, you're a household name now. Mm. But that model is sort of crumbling in a sense with the advent of social media. So now you can just be uploading short little funny videos on TikTok or on Instagram and you could build a following of 100,000 people. And as long as you really get 100 and 150 people seats in a, in a, in a theatre somewhere, that's kind of enough to sort of get you going. So instead of needing to go to sort of Edinburgh TV route to build your name, you can just do it on your phone. Maybe it's an age thing, but I find that like the old system in the music industry as well was that you didn't have to be like incredible at marketing. You just had to find like the access point. So like, yeah. I'm not sure like a band like Radiohead with a lead singer who's super shy and just wants to be left alone would ever make it on social media. And so you'd never hear Radiohead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of that. There's a lot of musicians who are very, very private people. Absolutely. But geniuses, musicians. So I, I, I would much prefer to go the route in a way that was more traditional than have to try and do something on social media all the time or... Yeah, I, and it's a different skill completely. Like, one, one thing, I've done a few things on social media and it's just different to the stage. Like, I prefer being on stage. I'm more comfortable as a stand-up on stage telling my jokes to an audience. But the challenge is getting those people to come to see you. You have to do social media now, then you have well, to. Yeah, I feel it's part of the game. And it just depends what you put on social media. Is it that you take your your one-man or one-woman production company where you go to these gigs with a camera and a tripod and a mic, you set that up at the back of the room, you press record, you go on stage, you do your thing, and if there's any little crowd moment bits, you clip that, put that online, get a bit of reaction, or you're out here doing sort of skits and sketches in your house or when you're out and about. Are you doing some Vox Popping street interviews? I, I have a theory though that because I, I, I was just having a watch for our hip hop crew that like the really popular social media clips on TikTok, which are super short and like people just playing piano. Yeah. And then this weird music and it's like 10 seconds. It's like not even 10 seconds. And you're like, yeah. what the fuck was that? I have a theory that I think 
The trouble with the social media is we're getting ruled by kids of what of what is good. So if a five-year-old, a 10-year-old, or the, it was probably more like 10 and up, you know, I've seen the way they consume it and their sense of humor is terrible. They haven't got a fucking clue what's funny. And they're like, oh, it's funny, the guy with the piano. It's like my dear son talking to me about what's funny. You yeah. know, what they find funny is really bizarre at times, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I feel like this, this, this and I feel like, I actually think it, the woke problem is a bit like that too. It's like people under 25 are not adults yet and they're still all about themselves they never ask anyone else a question they just wait for people to ask them questions and they're self-obsessed and they want you to call them this name not that name when they're in the room when they're not in the you know there's a and it almost feels like we need to say like on social media it's like you're under 25 you think that can I switch the setting of what people over 25 think is funny and then I'll get the, I'll get the shit I need because they're going to do really well on TikTok yeah. <laughs> they're taking over our lives I think honestly the fucking 10 year olds are deciding this is the most popular clip now I'm having to fucking sit and watch it in a room they were so bad though I mean they were and that's why it's unfair to us because how how can yeah. you as an adult yeah. with all of you being a doctor and all these yeah. things know what's going to make a fucking 10 year old laugh I know what's going to make a 30 year old laugh or whatever yeah, yeah. You know? and, and that's where discernment comes in and that's where you decide and that's where some people can lose themselves online because some you go on there you put out what you think is funny and you're like, okay, and this may be what a 30-year-old may think is funny, whatever. But then you can lose yourself online because you're like, oh, I want to go viral or I want the likes and yes. the comments. You can start changing what you put out to get those likes and comments. But the problem is, is that unless you're consistent with your content, you're not going to build an audience. Yeah. You need to be consistent in what you're doing. But it's the opposite of listening to the audience. You're, you're actually interestingly saying for social media is if I'm in front of an audience of people who are my age or, you know, or immediately they're going to be over 18 to buy a ticket, you Absolutely. know, at a certain level of knowledge and things I can talk about that their attention spans hopefully longer yeah. than two seconds. You know, and then what's interesting is saying on social media, it's like, and with reviews, it's like, be really careful what you listen to there. Yeah, yeah, because like, I the idea when I'm doing social media it's almost like an advert I'm basically saying hey this is what I can do or this is what I can be funny at I'm going to do I'm going to be a torso come see me live come see me live so there needs to be some sort of link between what I do online and what I do on stage because if online if I'm doing this TikTok where I'm just doing karaoke whatever I'm dancing doing karaoke <laughs> that's what I'm doing and then all these TikTok all these 10 year olds turn up to watch you you know and then they come see me and I'm talking about yeah being being a father they're like what the fuck where's the dancing why are you dancing Michael you know what I'm saying nothing you're gonna shake your hips for us so then so that's where there needs to be some sort of through line I think anyway between yeah, yeah. what you do on stage and what you do online I, th I think that's the thing with social media. You've got to build in an audience that will actually come and see you rather than just building... Be consistent. Yeah, be consistent in what you're sort of doing. I say this with not many followers, but I think that's the way to go. This is 10 second quick far round. This is sort of get to know. Yeah. Quick questions, 10 second answers, please. DQ the music. Thank you very much. Uh, what was your first job? Nando's. Ooh. What was your worst job? Uh, doing security at the Olympics. Oh, wow. Yeah, we might go back to that one. What's your favorite subject at school? Uh, it was maths. Ooh. What's your special skill? I've been making people laugh. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good skill. That you've always been able to do. I'm, I'm fucking, I'll come back to it. What did you want to be when you grew up? Footballer. Oh, did you? Oh, these are good answers. Uh, what did your parents want you to be? 
Doctor. Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Um, you're like me. I must want my, my parents want to meet when my dad did, an accountant. Here I am. What, what, what's your go-to karaoke song? Uh, Meek Mill, I'm a Boss. I'm a Boss. A hip-hop song, Meek Mill. Yeah, hip- hip-hop song. Yeah, yeah. Rapper from Philadelphia. Wow. Does it, is, there, is there a lyric that's like, I'm a boss? Yeah, I'm a yeah, boss. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the chorus is like, Bitch, I'm a boss, I'm a boss, I'm a boss, I'm a boss. <laughs> Office dogs. <laughs> Business or bullshit? Bullshit. <laughs> Have you ever been fired? I fired myself. Oh, really? Yeah, from Nando's. Did you really? Absolutely. Um, you need to tell that now. How did, you just walked out, yeah? No, no, no. So essentially what happened, I it was a part-time job I was doing. I was at sixth form doing it weekends and evenings. And I was doing it every week. And then I wanted to, had a family holiday booked over Christmas. And that is obviously peak trading hours. This was in Blue R, so big shopping center. They, want, they don't want people to take time off before, in and around Christmas because mm. that's when they're busy with shoppers. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry, it's a family holiday booked to America. See ya. I'm going. And then I kind of sort of left it like that. And then they came up from the holiday and I sheepishly tried to call them. And I was like, oh, have I, when's my, when am I next in? I don't know. When am I next? Because they used to put the timetables in the office at night. So I've not been in for two weeks. I don't know when I'm next in. And then I remember they like, okay, come in. Come, you're, you're here at 12. Come in at 12 on Saturday. I got there. They're like, oh, you're meant to start at five. And it was about an hour commute each way. And I was like, what? So what, am I meant to wait here for five hours? So then I, I think I went to one of my friends who was working at, uh, he was working at JD around the corner. I was like, oh, they're taking a piss. He's like, yeah, they are taking a piss. I'm, I'm going home. I'm going home. So I went home and then like the next people be like, hey, uh, you know, about that job and shift. And they were like, I think the guy said, oh, what would you do in my situation if you had a worker who, you know, I felt wasn't pulling their weight and, you know, didn't respect the job? I said, oh, fire them. He said, that, well, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I lost that job. <laughs> <laughs> What's your vice? Yeah, I think write, writing stand-up. I think going away and like sitting in the room, writing stand-up, performing stand-up. I'll, I'll just say stand-up comedy. I think that's my vice. That's my thing. That's that's therapy for me. That's therapy. Yeah, I think yeah, stand-up yeah. therapy for me. Any recommendations of something to watch, read, listen to? I would recommend that you listen or read, depending on how you're inclined, Akala Natives. I think that's a very good book. Oh, by Akala, the by rapper. By Akala, the rapper, yeah, yeah. yeah He's yeah. a book, Natives. Very uh, clever man. Very clever man who takes on race and class. I think two sort of touchy issues in, in Britain. Anytime those two things are mentioned, everyone tightens up. Yeah. I think he, he tackles difficult subjects with sort of consummate ease and very relatable. Related to his story, Personal and political mixed in very nicely there. I would encourage you to watch just for a bit of trash TV. Uh, I'm very serious, but I like a bit of trash TV. Love is Blind on Netflix, especially watching it with someone of the opposite oh, sex. Oh, Love is Blind is the one, is that the one when they have to make a decision, is it? Which one's Love is Blind? Love is Blind is where they get like 15 singletons, male and female, and then they they talk in the pods. They don't see each other. It's literally meant to, you're meant to build an emotional relationship. Oh, you just talk. You just talk. You don't see each other, just talk. And then you get to a point where the man proposes, 
based off conversation alone and then they meet each other. Oh, wow. I better watch that one. My wife's addicted to these, but I haven't yeah. done that one. So, yeah, I would recommend, especially watching it with your wife. I think that was just... Have you good. seen Naked Attraction? Have you watched that I've one? I've not seen it. I know what it's about. I've not seen Fucking it. Hell, that one is painful. Oh, my God. I've not God. seen it, but I need to add it to my Trash TV repertoire. So, <laughs> uh, I'm a big fan of Trash TV. So, Love is by Netflix. Not that they need my help in PR. So, Michael, please tell us when you're you're playing soon or, you know, you've got 30 seconds to tell us. You yeah, know. Absolutely, yeah. So, I'm coming out of a new tour for 2024. It may or may not be of Edinburgh. Who knows? But they'll be. I'll be touring next year. The working title right now is Trust Me, I'm a Daddy. Hopefully, it's coming to a town or city close to you. So, find me on social media at Michael Akadiri. If you type in Michael, aka into TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it, you should find me. Yeah, follow me on my journey and hopefully come and come and see me. Come say hello. Come and see me at a tour show. Very cool. And I love the fact that your first second name starts, AKA. Yeah, also known as, I could talk a lot of shit here, but I won't. But yeah, please come and see me. And also, uh, before my friends tell me, listen to Late Nights and Wet Wipes, uh, parenting podcast, free comedians, I'm one of them, talking about the trials and tribulations of parenting. If you are that way inclined, maybe it'll add to the form of contraception for you. Maybe it will encourage you when you're doing a night feed, but come and listen to us. Thank you. Oh, big up. Love that. So there you have it. That was this week's episode of Business Without Bullshit. Michael, you've been brilliant. Thank you, D. Sorry, Romeo, he didn't vote for you lying on the ground. We'll be back with our quiz, Business or Bullshit. Until then, it's ciao. 